Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with the battle over the carbon tax. Federal Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev is my first guest. He is standing by. Let's listen first here. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last week, he made this policy reversal on the federal carbon tax. Let's have a listen. We have to make sure we're fighting climate change in ways that supports all Canadians. So that is why today we are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil so that we can give everyone the time and ability to switch to heat pumps. All right, Trudeau speaking last week. Well, less than 2% of B.C. households use oil to heat their homes. Most people using natural gas. Let's discuss with my guest now, Pierre Polyev, leader of the federal Conservative Party, leader of the official opposition in the House of Commons. Mr. Polyev, thanks for coming on today. Good to be with you. Okay, let's talk about this uh, surprise announcement from Trudeau here on home heating oil and the carbon tax, or maybe it's not that much of a surprise. Your thoughts? Well, British Columbia is getting screwed again under the Trudeau-NDP coalition government. So let's just uh, set the table here. The federal government has a law requiring that provinces bring in a carbon tax. And that forces BC to have this high carbon tax that it imposes right now. And Trudeau wants to quadruple that tax to 61 cents a liter. And the D.C. government would administer that federal policy. So what Trudeau is saying is that he's going to pause the application of that tax, but only for people who use oil heating. Now, only 3% of households do that. Almost all of them are in eastern Canada. In other words, he's giving a break to one region without giving it to all regions. So British Columbians are going to have to pay home heating taxes on their propane or natural gas, and uh, they will not get the break that he is promising others. Why does Justin Trudeau not care about British Columbia? Why does he, why is he not worried about the seniors who are going to have to choose between eating and heating as a result of this massive carbon tax that he and the NDP are imposing? Pierre Polyev and the Common Sense Conservatives will axe the tax. Okay, do you think the tax should be removed from natural gas? Most people in British Columbia here use natural gas to heat their homes. Yes. Okay, well, it's a provincial tax, though, right? So this federal tax does not apply. What is your message to the the NDP Premier here in British Columbia, David Eby? Do you call on him to scrap this tax? Yes, although he can't right now because there's a federal law that requires provinces apply the carbon tax on home heating. And so if if Mr. Eby were to remove it today, the federal law would kick in and a new federal tax would immediately apply. So I'm asking Justin Trudeau to provide the same exemption for natural gas heating for British Columbians that he's applied for oil heating for Atlantic Canadians. Uh, A Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. We can't have one set of taxes for the East and another set for the West. Everybody should be treated equal, and I want all home heating to be tax-free. 
Speaking to Pierre Pauly, a federal conservative leader, as you mentioned here, home heating oil mostly used in eastern Canada, and the federal liberals here, I think, clearly feeling the heat in that part of the country here on this. Let's listen to Ken McDonald here, liberal MP from Newfoundland, who actually voted, he voted with you to get rid of the carbon tax. Here, here he is speaking, and I'll get your thoughts. Ken McDonald, this is a liberal MP. Listen to this. I've had people tell me they can't afford to buy groceries, uh, they can't afford to heat their homes, and that's hard to hear from especially seniors who live alone. Was it, did it surprise you when you saw this Liberal MP actually side with your team here and vote against the carbon tax in the House of Commons? Well, I was surprised there wasn't more because this carbon tax is driving people into misery. After eight years of Trudeau and the NDP, Two million Canadians are going to the food bank. This is a record-smashing number. These tent cities are popping up in every town as people can't afford the doubling of housing costs that Trudeau and the NDP have given us. And we, those tent cities are now filled with people who have lost hope and have taken on drugs just to deal with the mental anguish and misery that Canada has become uh, after eight years of Trudeau. Uh, now we have uh, Canadians who can't afford losing their homes to eviction or mortgage defaults. Uh, this is the misery Trudeau and the NDP have given. And so it's, uh, I'm surprised there aren't more Liberal MPs. You know what surprises me, though? Why are the B.C. Liberals from the Lower Mainland so quiet? Why don't they fight for B.C. the way this lone Liberal did in Newfoundland? Why are the Liberal MPs from Surrey uh, and the Vancouver area quiet as church, church mice? while their constituents go hungry and can't have to choose between eating and heating. It's time for a common-sense conservative MP in your neighbourhood will stand up for B.C. and Ottawa, not the other way around. Let me ask you about the the complications here of the federal versus the provincial carbon tax that you touched on briefly there. So you're saying that if if David Eby, the NDP premier here, was to come out today and say, look, okay, I'm scrapping the carbon tax on home heating oil in British Columbia just like Trudeau has done at least for three years, well, that's only going to help a very small number of people here. But if he also said, we'll pause it on natural gas, are you saying that he wouldn't be able to, he would not be allowed to do that under this law? I mean, he could he could certainly pause that part of it provincially, could he not? Yes, but then the federal government, under the current liberal law, yeah. would immediately apply a federal tax. And how do we know that? Because that's what they've done in Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, and Ontario, where the provincial governments, conservative governments, have all refused to apply the carbon tax. The federal government has come in and applied it, applied it for them. So if Mr. Eby were to eliminate the, the, the tax on natural gas heating today, Trudeau, under the law, would apply a federal tax in its place. So that's why you need a new prime minister Pierre Polyev and the common sense conservatives who will axe the tax and allow provinces to lower the cost of home heating. Where do you suggest if the provincial government here was to to go along with this and and get rid of the scale back this carbon tax, where would they make up all that lost revenue? This carbon tax provincially here in BC right now generates hundreds of millions of dollars for the provincial government. How are they supposed to replace all that money? Well, they're spending like drunken sailors as NDP and liberals do all the time. Remember when that tax came in, it was supposed to be revenue neutral. And yeah. then the, the, the EB government and the NDP government just raised all kinds of taxes. 
And uh, that's what liberal NDP governments do. They drive up the cost on everyday people. And what are you getting in exchange for all these extra taxes you're paying? You're getting nothing. You're getting bigger, fatter bureaucracies. You're getting more waste, more contracts for insiders. Uh, and we don't need that. We need more money in the pockets of everyday people. So this is the choice. Either you're going to have a liberal NDP, a costly coalition of liberals and NDP who tax your heat, punish your work, take your money, tax your groceries and unleash crime in your community or a common sense conservative government that frees you to earn a powerful paycheck that buys affordable food, gas and homes in safe neighborhoods. We're following it closely here. Thank you for coming on today. Great to be with you. Let's talk about the opioid addiction crisis in our province now. We discuss this a lot on the show. The number of drug overdose deaths in B.C. continues to rise. We keep setting new records for overdose fatalities in the first seven months of this year. 1,455 overdose deaths in B.C., That is, again, a new record. What role does prescription opioids play in this epidemic? I've got Huguette Allen standing by to tell her story. First, have a listen to this report here now. This is from PBS NewsHour. Most experts say this crisis began in the 1990s when some doctors and medical associations argued that for generations their profession had ignored the problem of chronic pain, which had caused unnecessary suffering for millions of patients. At roughly the same time, the pharmaceutical industry, which was eager to boost sales of its new class of painkillers like OxyContin, told doctors that these new drugs could be used without fear of their patients becoming addicted. The industry even put out testimonial videos like this one from Purdue Pharma in 2000. We doctors were wrong in thinking that opioids can't be used long term. They can be and they should be. All right. Opioids continue to be prescribed for patients here in British Columbia. Let's discuss with my guest now, Huguette Allen. Huguette lives in Lumbee, British Columbia, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Huguette, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for your interest. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot, and I appreciate you sharing your story with our listeners here. How old are you? I'm 75. 75, that's awesome. Good for you. Now, let's, let's talk about your knee replacement surgery here, right? When, when did that happen for you? It happened on May 26th of this year. Okay. Okay, and how did that go for you? Were you in pain after the surgery? Well, I don't know, <laughs> because I took painkillers before the pain came, as I was advised to do, because as I'm sure you're aware, when you get a knee surgery, it's extremely important to exercise after so that you can regain mobility. And yeah. being 75, and I, I'm a woman in, in good shape, I've always exercised, I was determined to do everything necessary so that I could regain mobility as quickly as possible. So the advice was, you take the painkillers every four hours to ensure that you can do your exercises. So you don't wait until the pain occurs. You take them ahead of time to prevent the pain. So I did that. The prescription said that I could take one or two of the tramadol, and I took one every four hours. So that way, I definitely kept the pain under control. I was able to do everything necessary. Right. Okay. Tramadol. A lot of listeners will be familiar with that particular drug. This is an opioid medicine used for 
for pain relief. So this was prescribed for you by your doctor, correct? Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, because yeah, when yeah. you come out of the hospital uh, after knee surgery, you've got about seven different drugs that are prescribed, and that one is definitely a painkiller. There's also nerve painkillers. There's different ones, but that is the man-made opioid that is usually prescribed. Right. Okay. So what was that drug like when you began taking it? Was it effective? Well, I think it was because I did not have bad pain. Uh, I sometimes woke up at night and had to take painkillers because my knee hurt and I would take a tramadol and the pain would go away and I'd fall asleep. Um, I never felt that I was extremely, you know, that I was really affected uh, psychologically by it except that after taking it and exercising, I would go and uh, put my leg up, put some ice on it. And if I closed my eyes, I sometimes uh, I felt, oh, I'm, I'm really drugged. But I would open my eyes and I was fine. I was able to walk properly. So it never really worried me. You know, it's not as if uh, I had been really high and unable to, um, to think properly, but that didn't occur. But two weeks after, uh, when I was at physiotherapy, the physiotherapist asked me if I was still taking them. I said, yes. And he said, how often? I said, every four hours. He said, well, maybe now you could start reducing, you know, maybe one in the morning, one at night, or because I don't think you need them every four hours. I was doing really well, by the way. I was definitely in advance of all the benchmarks. So yeah. I tried that. Um, but I was really uneasy. Every four hours, I seen, uh, well, I woke up at night. I couldn't sleep. So I thought, geez, it's got to be that drug. I must, you know, I'm too used to it. So I'm just going to stop because I don't have a lot of pain. I'm not waking up for pain. I'm just waking up reaching for a pill. So I stopped completely. And that's when I realized how badly addicted I had been. I just could not function. I had diarrhea. I couldn't, I couldn't be quiet. I could not read. I could not watch anything. I was crying. I was walking oh. around, sitting down, just, you know, the way that you would think of seeing somebody on uh, Vancouver East Side, you know, just oh. totally unable to function. Yeah. How long had you been taking the tramadol at that point? Two, two weeks only. Two weeks. Okay. So it was only two weeks. But did you yep. feel like, like you said, addicted there? Do you feel like even after two weeks, you felt you, you feel like you were you had, were becoming addicted to the drug? Oh, for sure. I couldn't mm. function without it. I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't believe it at first. I thought two weeks on a drug that I took for pain relief. That doesn't make sense to me. But then I've talked to other people since and it makes perfect sense. And a lot of people at physiotherapy told me that they would never take that drug. I said, what did you take for pain relief? And they took either Tylenol 3, they took, uh, you know, they took off the, the counter drugs and they said they just took more of it if they had pain, but it worked for them. So, you know, my big question is, why do we continue to do this? I mean, yeah. you know, first of all, we should only hand them out if the, nothing else will work. And if they do hand them out, they should hand them out with a protocol on how and when to stop because... What I was told after was that I never should have stopped cold turkey. Well, I didn't know that. You know, apparently what you're supposed to do is you keep taking them, but you reduce the dose. You know, you cut it in half and then you cut it in, in quarters. Well, I didn't know that. Maybe that would have helped. Maybe I wouldn't have had all these terrible three days that I had. Yeah. Speaking of Huguette Allen, 
you get is a, a senior in Lumbee, British Columbia, talking about her experience with taking a prescription opioids, in this case, tramadol. When when your doctor prescribed this drug for you, you get did did the doctor warn you that hey, this drug is potentially addictive? No, uh, you do. Uh, you get a lot of information from the hospital, written information. And on it, it said some people are concerned about addiction. This is a very rare occurrence. And when it's taken for pain, you typically don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. But do you feel that when you you felt that you were experiencing like withdrawal, like those those three days you just described? That sounds like three days of hell there you went through. They were. They absolutely were. I couldn't I couldn't stop crying. I could barely sleep. I slept. I'd sleep for a couple of hours and wake up. It was really very bad. And that's when I realized that, in my humble opinion, I don't think anybody who's out on the street, um, and particularly if it comes from that kind of drug, I don't think that they will ever voluntarily easily stop doing that. I mean, (laughs) it's really hell. And, you know, I mean, for me, there's no there's no way that I would ever become a drug addict. You know, I've got yeah. too much uh, running on my reputation and who I feel I am as a person. I, I wouldn't do that. But, I mean, I can imagine if somebody is lonely, if somebody's lost their job, you know, different things happening. Um, it's very, very tough to stop. Yeah. And after those three days of those withdrawal symptoms you were describing there, did it? I assume it got better after that, did it? Oh, yes, definitely. By then, I was feeling normal again. I was able to function. I was able to focus on things. I was able to work. You know, I was normal again. But it took three days of trying to get rid of that in my system. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe some things remain. I don't know. But, you know, I'm I'm fine. Yeah. Have you talked to... You've been very brave in speaking out about your experience here, and I know you you mentioned you've been speaking to other people as well. Have, have you spoken to anyone else who started taking these these type of drugs and got got hooked on them or felt that they were addictive? I didn't talk to people who got addicted to them, but I did. T- at least that's not what they told me. But they told me they would never take that again. Now, yeah. some people apparently um, react very badly psychologically. You know, they they have visions immediately and they're totally out of their minds. That didn't happen to me. So I can't talk about that, except that I know a lot of people at Physio told me I would never take Tramadol again. Why they didn't tell me? A lot of people don't want to admit to that kind of thing. But, um, you know, that's what I'm getting. When you were going through those withdrawal symptoms, did you feel like cravings to take start taking the drugs again? Oh, for sure, because, you know, you just want to stop that feeling that you have of inability to do anything. I couldn't I couldn't hold a conversation. I would just get up from a chair, start walking. You know, you don't know what to do with your body. It's uh, you keep rubbing yourself. You just don't know what to do. It's uh, it's an awful feeling. You need something. You're not hungry. Um, it's just a, a terrible feeling of not knowing what can make you better, except you know that if you took that drug, you would calm down. Yeah. Yeah, so you therefore think that this experience now, would you you, th- you therefore think that there should be a lot more caution exercised with um, prescription, pres- prescribing these drugs? 
Well, I think I think two things. I think that they should never hand them out unless they know that absolutely nothing else would work. And in my case, the people tell me a lot of other things have worked. And if they are handed out, they should be handed out with a protocol, a piece of paper saying, here's when you should stop it and here's how you do it. So that people are aware that there is grave danger. And another thing, too, I think that, you know, right now in B.C., we're talking a lot about harm reduction. And I understand. And, you know, this is based on the thought that addiction is a disease. Well, I don't think we can call it a disease, except that it's a manufactured disease that anyone who adopts a certain behavior will get that disease. I mean, I got it after two weeks and I'm 75 years old. And it's a disease that can be eradicated by changing a behavior. So it's not just a disease that anybody just catches like a cold, you know. And I think thinking of it that way makes the society think of drug addiction as more permissible. You know, a lot of kids who have died from this, their parents and the kids themselves have said that doctors and other people in power talked about, oh, well, you're a kid, it's normal, you like drugs, and so on. I don't think it's normal. I think that it's, um, I think that kids need challenges, and I think that it's too easy to see drug as something that gives them that high without working. I think that there are far healthier ways for kids to experiment than by taking drugs. And that's what we've got to push when when we talk about um, drug education, we need for kids to understand that they can get a lot of highs, but you know, usually they they mean doing something. They need they mean getting skills, learning something, and those highs can be acquired through exhilarating experiences, you know, such as canoeing sure. rivers, whatever. But sure. I think drugs. I mean, once you're addicted, it's hell, and it's hard to get out of it. I'm thinking okay. of somebody who ends up on the street. How do they get out of that unless yeah. unless they go through hell? And it, they're okay. not going to do it voluntarily. You get. Thank you for coming on today and sharing your story. I'm glad you were able to get through that, and I wish you a full recovery from your surgery. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in that. Let's discuss with my guest now, Marshall Smith. Marshall is one of Canada's leading advocates for addiction treatment and recovery. He's the chief of staff for the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith. And Marshall is a recovered drug addict himself. Marshall, thank you for coming on today. Good afternoon, Mike. It's great to hear you. Great to be back on. It's it's great to have you here. And, you know, it's interesting when I was listening to some of the interviews on the weekend uh, of Matthew Perry, and he was talking about his journey through addiction and treatment i found myself thinking of your experience because we've talked about this so often because one of the things that he he had said in an interview was that when he was in the grips of his addiction that he just he couldn't stop like when he had people try to help him he would try to get into recovery he just found it almost impossible to stop doing drugs stop drinking marshall what went through your mind when you heard that he's passed away you know, I mean, it's. I had the fortune to meet Matthew on, on a couple of occasions, and we had some great, uh, long, deep conversations about recovery and 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 recovery advocacy. It was very sad. Of course, it's very sad when we lose anybody. Um, of course, the circumstances around his death are not quite known yet. Uh, we know that he uh, uh, drowned. Is the is the report, yeah. and and I'm told that there were no drugs or alcohol found, but. 
But it's very sad when we lose anybody. And of course, you know, Matthew did fight a, a valiant battle uh, with addiction and for the most part, you know, came out on top, uh, which is great. And uh, reading back through some of the some of the notes uh, on Matthew Perry, Matthew wanted to be remembered not as the guy from Friends. He wanted to be remembered in recovery as a as an individual who helped other people. Uh, and so that's how I'm thinking about him today. Yeah, let's listen to a clip here of him, and he did a lot of really powerful interviews here in the past year after the publication of his of his memoir. Let's listen to one of them here, Marshall, and I'll get your thoughts. So this is Matthew Perry. I say in the book that um, if I did die, it would shock people, but it wouldn't surprise anybody. And that's what I'm doing with writing this book. That's why I wanted to do it. I wanted to talk about the highs and the lows because people are suffering out there. And maybe if they hear a story from somebody they've seen on TV that's worse than theirs or just the same as theirs, they'll be filled with hope, which is the key thing. Matthew Perry there speaking, and we uh, he passed away on the weekend. My guest is Marshall Smith. Marshall met Matthew. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What were the circumstances that you met him there? You know, the, the first time that I met Matthew was at a fundraiser in Vancouver. Um, you know, he was the keynote speaker. He was an amazing speaker, uh, so full of life, so full of recovery and, and great messaging. And I had met him uh, subsequent to that uh, twice in Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, he, Matthew was, uh, as I'm sure, you know, recovery advocacy kind of at that level, um, you know, you, you sort of run into each other all over the place. Um, he was a great guy, he, and, and his message of recovery and hope and inspiration was tremendous, and, and he helped a lot of people uh, by putting himself out there as an example. He fought a courageous battle with addiction, right? which is something that we don't always hear. We don't always say that uh, with people who, who ultimately succumb you know, to uh, complications arising from their addiction. We never say that they fought a courageous battle against addiction, but that's true. We say that of other illnesses. Uh, and, and Matthew often espoused that, you know, a lot of hope and inspiration from people. So, One of the things I think has passed through a lot of people's minds here the last couple of days is here was a guy who seemingly had, had it all, right? He was young and famous and, and very wealthy and had lots of support networks in his life, lots of opportunity to get to get treatment, but he still found it so, so very difficult. And I was I was reminded of my earlier conversations with you on this precise point, because you came from, you know, you came from a a very stable family. Right. And you and you you experienced similar similar challenges. Anyway, your thoughts. Yeah, Yeah, well, look, none of those things, any of our our station you know, uh, in life or our privilege and upbringing or or none of these things matter when facing the illness of addiction. Uh, And it is a a non-discriminating illness that strikes uh, everybody equally. And it is equally as vicious. Um, The good news is, uh, as as Matthew would say, as as I have said so many times, uh, that uh, there is hope. Recovery is possible. Treatment and recovery are available, and success is all around us. So if you are somebody who's struggling with addiction, no matter how difficult it seems, know that there are hundreds of 
thousands of other people out there just like you who have recovered and you can as well. Speaking to Marshall Smith, Marshall is uh, uh, one of Canada's leading advocates for addiction treatment and recovery. And you're talking about the very sad death of actor Matthew Perry on the weekend. I listened very carefully to his Matthew Perry's journey through addiction. He started drinking when he was very young. He was drinking every day. Um, he got heavily into cocaine. The what is it about addiction that some people, if they do, I remember very vividly, Marshall, you telling me about the you know, the first time that you tried cocaine and it, and it had this immediate grip on you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why is it that some people can do can do drugs or drink recreationally and it's not a problem, but for other people it turns into this life-changing uh, addiction? Well, you know what, Mike, that's the $25,000 question, isn't it? I mean, there, there are those of us who have a predisposition uh, to, uh, to a substance use disorder. And there are those of us that can go home and drink a glass of wine and, and unwind after work. I can't do that. If I go home and drink a glass of wine, I'm going to polish off three bottles and I'll see you in four days. Uh, and, and that is the nature of this illness. It, it, it's a little bit like asking uh, somebody, uh, you know, who eats junk food, why some people develop diabetes and, you know, and others don't. This is a chronic illness. Uh, it has lifestyle factors. It has genetic factors. Uh, and each of us is unique in, in this situation. The challenge and the risk, of course, is that we don't know who has these predispositions or these factors often until it's too late. So generally, uh, words of wisdom, uh, you know, watch your alcohol intake. Uh, you know, the drugs that are out there on the streets today are deadly and they should not be used. Uh, and, and you can hopefully avoid some of these things, because, of course, you know, we're here today talking about Matthew Perry, who's a famous guy, uh, you know, a little bit about my story. Uh, but, you know, I would be very remiss not to say on the air uh, that we are losing thousands of, of, of people out there every day who are not famous uh, or privileged in, in the way that Matthew or, or I or, or others have been. And so, um, you know, I just I'd like to bring them uh, and their memory into the conversation as well. Uh, and we as you know, governments across the country uh, and communities need to do everything that we can to make sure that we are talking about a hopeful message of recovery and ensuring that services are there for everybody. What kind of impact do you think Matthew Perry had here on the, when it comes to addiction treatment, recovery, awareness of the issue? You've touched on some of the times that you've you've met with him and your paths crossed with him as a, as an, another advocate for recovery. When he goes public like this, with this kind of very graphic book, talking about his near death experiences with drugs and alcohol, yeah. do you think, what kind of benefit do you think that has? What kind of, what kind oh, of impact do you think it has? You know, it's It's a tremendous impact. Um, and, and the impact is incalculable. Um, you know, there, there are interviews that I've done, uh, you know, quite frankly, some with you, Mike, over the years, uh, where I still get emails from people um, years later uh, saying, you know, I heard you on the radio and you were right. And I, you know, did, I went to treatment and you know, this is my life today. So you just you it, it's always amazes me uh, the hundreds of emails and 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 uh, and lives that can be touched, you know, by that simple positive messaging. And I can only imagine that Matthew's book.
uh, has and will continue to touch the lives of millions of people. And I think that's a legacy that he he can be very proud of. We heard him say in that clip there that we played of him that if he passed away, if he died, people would be shocked, but not surprised. And I, I certainly think people were shocked by this event on the weekend. I don't know. Were you surprised? I mean, you, you're a guy who met him a few times and he seemed to have, he seemed to have cl- been clean, right? Well, yes. I, there's no evidence to indicate that his death had anything to do with drugs or alcohol. Uh, you know, the LA Los Angeles police report that there were no drugs or alcohol found at the scene. Uh, and so there's no reason to, to believe that his, at this time, at least that his death was linked to addiction. Um, however, notwithstanding that, I think that when he made the comment that he did, he was referencing, you know, a time in his life when he was in, in addiction. And certainly, you know, that is true. I mean, we often, uh, it is a disease of denial and avoidance. And those around us in our workplaces and homes and community uh, often, um, you know, will say after the fact you know, I could have seen that coming or I could have told you that was going to happen. Uh, and yet we don't do anything to intervene, you know, or assist. So I think, you know, when when Matthew makes comments like that, uh, that it would be shocking but unsurprising, that's true. I mean, we see evidence of people succumbing fatally to addiction to alcohol and drugs every day. It's all too common part of our daily narrative. And it shouldn't be, right? It's a highly survivable illness. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Marshall, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today and your memories of Matthew. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks so much, Mike. All the best. Let's talk about Halloween fireworks now. Have you been hearing fireworks in your neighborhood? Uh, Halloween is tomorrow, but, you know, the fireworks start early. I wonder if there was a lot of fireworks happening in the, around the region on the weekend, get set to call me and tell me what it's been like. I wonder if it's gone down a little bit. Like we have a lot of municipalities around Metro Vancouver now have banned fireworks. Not all of them, but many of them have, many of them have done that. But do the bans work? I've got Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry standing by to discuss. Let's go back into the time machine here now. This is one year ago. This is what it sounded like downtown Vancouver last year on Halloween. Have a listen. Yeah. Have a listen to that. Listen to that. That is wild, man. And that's in Vancouver where fireworks are banned. Does that sound like a ban to you? That's a lot of that's a lot of fireworks. Let's check in with Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry now. Hey Pete, thanks for coming on today. Hey Mike. So ironically the feed, I couldn't hear anything, so I don't know if that was the gag, but well, maybe that's a blessing in disguise. It was it was basically nonstop fireworks going off in Vancouver last year. So I remember, Pete, you were one of the main supporters of a ban on fireworks, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, in fact, it was a motion I brought forward in 2019 to ban the sale and discharge of consumer fireworks in Vancouver. And uh, the first year came into effect in 2020. And uh, we immediately, actually, the year that we banned it, um, we had about $600,000 worth of damage in, in, in and around Halloween alone just from fires. 
Whoa. So um, anecdotally, I would say that we've definitely been hearing a lot less uh, issues around fireworks uh, okay. as the now that we're in our third year of a ban of consumer sales. Yeah. So you're are you receiving fewer complaints then or you think it's you think the ban is working? Well, you know, I, I live in Strathcona, which is, is sort of, you know, Chinatown East Van, and yeah. uh, we would get a lot of fireworks. And I can just say, you know, from my own perspective, it's barely any uh, this time of year now. So okay. Okay. it seems that it has it has diminished the amount of of kind of, you know, two weeks worth of fireworks that we typically see. I expect that we'll see fireworks, you know, on Halloween itself, but it's sure. definitely reduced the amount of yeah. especially on the sort of shoulders. Could see, could hear some fireworks tonight. We could hear some tomorrow. Tomorrow is Halloween. I once asked Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department, Pete, what happens when you receive a complaint about fireworks going off in a Vancouver neighborhood? Here's what he had to tell me. Let's have a listen. We simply don't have uh, the time uh, or the or, or the or the resources in place to um, chase kids with bottle rockets. To, yeah. um, to deal with families that are setting off fireworks in their cul-de-sacs. If there's an issue that's, that results in a serious public safety um, yeah. or, or is, results in a criminal offense, we definitely want to hear about that and we'll investigate. Okay, so basically, you know, we don't have the resources to go around chasing every kid setting off a firecracker, but if the ban is working, maybe there are fewer complaints to police. Pete Fry, your thoughts? Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think that was always notionally going to be the challenge with, you know, people are lighting off fireworks in the dark and, and running away. I mean, you'll, you'll never catch people. But the reality is, I think that eliminating the sales has really diminished uh, the ability to, 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 to light off fireworks in the first place. So by reducing the access, and if you'll remember in Vancouver, we'd have, you know, maybe a couple of dozen pop-up shops throughout the city uh, selling fireworks for the, the month leading up to Halloween. And, you know, really aggressively marketing them um, and very accessible. And I think eliminating that access to them has really, you know, that's that's the real change is is the sales. Yeah. Do you think that there should be a wider ban around Metro Vancouver? I know that's sort of strictly out of your your area of uh, responsibility, but Vancouver as a ban. But when you take a look around all of Metro Vancouver, it's like we have this patchwork of rules, right? Do you think there should be a wider ban? Um, you know, I, 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 I would hesitate to sort of say do it metro wide just because I know that, uh, you know, there's fireworks sales on, on, on native reserves that take place. And that's, you know, <clears throat> I, I would, I wouldn't want to necessarily overreach, um, into that space. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's effectively, we're seeing more and more municipalities are banning them anyway so i think that it, it's sort of a de facto regional approach and 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 you know inevitably i think it will just kind of uh no pun intended but just fizzle out as a as a kind of cultural phenomenon which you know a lot of folks we talk to uh who aren't from here they're kind of flabbergasted that we have fireworks at halloween in the first place <laughs> yeah yeah why were you you were very passionate on this issue at the time of the ban why did you feel so strongly about it like what is the problem with setting off fireworks once a year um, you know, I, uh, I, I've, uh, I've had dogs that have been kind of panicked by fireworks. And then a few years back, there was a, a dog, um, named Maggie in Trout Lake Park in an off-leash park in the middle of the day when some kids were lighting off, uh, screechers and bottle rockets. And, uh, 
terrified the dog, bolted from its owners, and uh, uh, ended up on the SkyTrain tracks and was hit by a SkyTrain and killed. And, you know, in talking to the family at the time, I was like, you know, this is, I mean, they were obviously distraught. And, you know, it sort of just underscored what I knew was already an issue for a lot of, uh, you know, pets and pet owners. And then I dug a little deeper and realized the the impacts it has on folks with PTSD, uh, you know, the impacts it has on, on wildlife, it leads to huge amounts of uh, wildlife death that we don't really record um, in any kind of meaningful way. And, 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 you know, then the fire damage. And we were seeing, you know, every year we'd see, a, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of damage in the city of Vancouver alone. And, you know, one year we had a, an apartment building catch fire and displaced, you know, a dozen residents. We had another year where, a, a, you know, an entire home burnt to the ground. And those folks were left, you know, hung out to dry on the insurance for years. And, uh, all, you know, for the careless use of fireworks and just kids, yeah. you know, acting the fool. So Okay. We talked about this on the show last week. And my guest was Alim Kanji, who is a spokesperson for the Canadian National Fireworks Association. So this guy is the main spokesperson for the fireworks industry. He's pro-fireworks. Okay. And I asked him about some of the points you just raised. And I said, what about pets who are terrified by fireworks every year, especially your dog. And I, I asked him that, and here's what he had to say, Pete, and I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. Sure. Keep your pets indoors. Close the windows. Maybe take them out to use the, uh, uh, to relieve themselves uh, before it gets dark because it's predictable, and you know when the fireworks are going to be used. As it is, most cities have a complete ban. They only allow them a couple of times of the year. Yeah, so he said, okay, well, if your dog is scared of the fireworks, just keep them indoors. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, obviously he's not uh, experienced Vancouver around Halloween uh, because it's not just, I mean, if it was just Halloween night for a couple of hours, I think most people would say, yeah, reasonable enough. But the reality is, uh, and was, that that it was, you know, in the weeks surrounding Halloween. And, you know, the dog I mentioned that was killed by the SkyTrain, that was in the middle of the day, not on Halloween. Uh, it was, you know, in the sort of general vicinity of Halloween. So uh, it's not, you know, if it was just a predictable, like, you know, Halloween fireworks at midnight and everybody could anticipate it and that was that, I think most folks would probably agree, yeah, reasonably keep your pet indoors. And I think most people probably do keep their pets indoors on Halloween anyway. Yeah. So what is the, what precisely is the bylaw in Vancouver right now? Like are fireworks not permitted period like they're complete is a 100 percent ban is that is that correct yeah basically for consumer uh fireworks there's a ban on the sales and discharge uh unless you're a certified pyrotechnician and so you know that that is that does leave the availability for organized events say if you know a community group wants to set some some up and get a, a properly certified pyrotechnician and get a permit to do so they are able to um on halloween or any other occasion uh, but it's 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 really not up to just the sort of free-for-all that we saw in the past. And, you know, I mean, I think that's reasonable. Um, and, you know, honestly, I, I get that it's a legacy thing, but if somebody was to come to us, you know, today with a pitch and say, hey, I got this great idea for these 
rocket propelled incendiary devices. We're going to pack them like with toxic metals and they're going to make all sorts of pretty colors and they're going to be loud enough to terrify wildlife and your pets and anybody suffering from PTSD. They're going to create tons of air pollution. They'll cause hundreds of dollars of fire damage every year. And we're going to sell them in the environment and market them to kids. I think <laughs> we would show them the door, right? I mean, it's, it's ludicrous to think that we would actually have, uh, you know, and I get that the industry guy is going to defend to defend his his work, but yeah. um, there's really, you know, it's a challenging um, environment to have in the urban context. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you put it that way, Pete. Maybe I think maybe you've convinced me now on it too. Okay. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Hey, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.